For the rest of us, uh, those of us in this class, we'll continue what we began a few, a couple months ago, our class on foundations, things that are foundational to the Christian faith that I think is important for us to revisit. We've looked at uh, four categories so far. Uh, we looked at creation, we looked at providence, we looked at what the Bible teaches concerning humanity, and we looked, about what the Bible, we looked at what the Bible teaches concerning itself, the Word of God. And as I said in the beginning, we did not consider the doctrine of God because on, recently on Wednesday nights we had done that, so I just assumed that area covered. Today, we're entering the last area of our study uh, on foundations. Now, it's not the last lesson, it's just the last area in this uh, series, and it is the doctrine of salvation. Uh, in books of theology, it's going to be called soteriology, based on the Greek word for salvation and savior. There are very few things that are more important for us to know and to know well than what the Bible teaches concerning our redemption. And we're going to follow a, a classic approach of talking about redemption in two, in two areas. Uh, theologians have historically divided this category into two areas. Uh, redemption accomplished, that's the uh, area of predestination, the work of Christ on the cross, what God has done to save people. And then redemption applied, the process of salvation for each individual, how people come to know God and how God works that out in their, their lives. So that's the plan for this last phase of our uh, study on, on foundations. So that will be the fifth area of theology that we're going to cover in this series. We, there is, uh, we use the word salvation uh, in common uh, speech as meaning that particular moment where you came to believe in Jesus Christ and you're saved. Uh, the Bible doesn't necessarily use the word just in that way. The word salvation is used in the Bible to describe the entire journey from complete unbelief and deadness in their sins to being made perfect at the resurrection. So that the, the, the word salvation and the der, der, derived words, the verbs and the nouns and so on, are used to talk about this, the entire work of God in the life of the elect from the eternity past when God first decided to save to the return of Jesus Christ, the resurrection, and the, the, um, we are made perfect in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, just a couple of examples of that. For example, in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2, when Paul is reaffirming the gospel to the Philippians, he talks about the gospel which I preached to you, which also received and in which you are stand by which also you are saved, and this is literally you are being saved if you hold to, I hold fast that word which I preach to you unless you believe in vain. So the word salvation can be used to the process of what's going on in us right now as we are being saved, as moved to that final glorification. Uh, in Romans 9, uh, 5, 9, Paul talks about the idea that, that there will be a time when we will be saved. So the word salvation can apply to all kinds of different theological concepts, and, and, and in theology we do divide them so that we can talk about them more, more properly. So 
but the, uh, the, the, from the very beginning, from eternity past, all the way to the glorification at the end, that's our salvation, the salvation of the elect. We're going to entertain questions in just a little bit. Uh, and the term used to, for this process of salvation in theology is called the order of salvation or the order salutis. And we're going to be looking at that uh, in the last portion of our, uh, of our series on foundations. All right? Okay. So, I'm going to start by showing ten categories on the screen that we're not going to define them right now because these are, this is a preview. So, if the question comes to your mind, Whoa, what, does that, what does that mean? Great question. Just not for today. Uh, and uh, we'll, we'll come back to talk about each one of these categories separately, okay? But I wanted to present to you what, it, uh, what this order is, what the, the, what the theologians have devised from the scriptures as salvation is applied to individuals. And I wanted to present in the logical order. And as I show them, it doesn't mean that it happens this way in time, that is, one happens then at a separate time. Two happens then at a separate time. This is the way of thinking. That's the logical order, the way of thinking of them. Several of them are happening all at the same time. right? But we pull them apart so we can talk about them. So, if we're gonna, in, the, in the logical order, the first thing that happens in salvation is effectual calling. When God actually calls somebody to the gospel of Jesus Christ as the Spirit works in them, that followed logically, not in time, logically by regeneration, and then by repentance unto life, then by faith in Jesus Christ, then by justification, then by definite, definitive sanctification. And I'll just say briefly, justification is the declaring you of not guilty. So is, is that, that's what justification is, declaration of not guilty. The, the definitive sanctification is the declaration of your, your, your being righteous. These are two different things. Uh, uh, you, you, being declared not guilty is not enough because God is after a perfect people. So you have to be declared also to be completely righteous at the same time. So being declared not, not guilty kind of brings you to zero. That definitive sanctification brings you to being perfect in the sight of God all by what the Lord Jesus Christ did, followed by adoption. Now again, these are logical steps, not time of so far, all, pretty much all these things are happening at the same time, okay, time-wise. Followed by progressive sanctification, where we become what God declared us to be. Also accompanied by perseverance and holiness, and then glorification. So these are kind of the ten things we're going to be looking at. They're not ten lessons, uh, because some of them are uh, happening at the same time, can be seen as synonymous. But these are the ten things we're going to be looking under this here. Put it in a different way, so we can complicate it a little more. Uh, let's put it, I wanted to gather them now and list them by who is acting. Is God acting? Is he, the, the person acting? Ultimately, everything about salvation is initiated by God. God is the one doing it. So we could, we could talk about salvation, it's entirely being monergistic from regeneration to glorification, being only God working. But in, in the horizontal plane, when we're doing it, there are some things that uh, God is doing alone. There are some things that uh, in this life we are doing along with God. And so we can think of them as synergistic, as working together with, with God. So, 
it all starts with two divine acts. God alone is working in our effectual calling and regeneration, followed by two divine and human acts. So we can say that, talk about these as being um, synergistic. When we, we respond in, respe- in, rep- in, in repentance and faith, followed again by divine acts. Only God is doing this, which is uh, justification, uh, definitive sanctification, and our adoption. Followed by two uh, divine and human action, uh, action, acts in our progressive sanctification and our perseverance and holiness, concluding with one divine act in our glorification. So, and this is from the, from the human perspective, okay? So we're looking at, from our side, this is, this is how it uh, works. All right, any questions about what I have said? Not about what I have not yet said. <laughs> yes, Rick. Well, my question came up with talking about the uh, salvation being a process. Uh, I mean, it's part of a process. No, it's, it's, uh, the word salvation can refer to different parts of what theologically... So salvation means all that. The Bible uses salvation to refer to each one of those categories. So not necessarily as a... Salvation is not considered as a process, but it's just that the word is not used as technically as we in theology like to use them. Yeah. Okay, all right. Now, today we want to go before what these terms talk about to the part of uh, our redemption. This, uh, that's, the only thing, that's the only time we're going to be talking about the redemption accomplished by part. All this before it was the redemption applied Today I want to talk about the redemption accomplished, and that's the idea of election and reprobation. So that's what we're going to be talking. Uh, if you and if you're kind of having a struggle with li- listing all those stuff, I'll, I'll post that on our blog. That way you have all those steps and not have to worry about that there. And to do that, I want to first define about three or four terms without defending them. Then I want to go back and defend those terms from the scriptures and then end this lesson, Lord willing, uh, with the doctrine of reprobation. That's the, 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 the idea that God has elected people to go to hell. And that's not one that we have the warm and fuzzies for. right? But to begin, I want you to open your Bible to Exodus chapter 34. And the reason why I wanted to start here is because we look at these things and we keep them super separate. And when the Bible talks about all that we're talking about together, there's a simplicity in our salvation because there's a simplicity in our God. And simplicity in theology means that you can't divide. That's always present as, as one. And when, when we talk about God's election, we, we tend to forget what God we're talking about because we probably we wouldn't we would perhaps not do things like God does so we end up making God in our own image instead of letting God be who he is as declared in the Bible so as we look at the doctrine of election as we look at the doctrine of reprobation remember that we are looking at the decrees the the rules the the commands of this God that we read about in Exodus 34 If you look at verse 6, 
God is speaking to Moses. He's answering Moses' request to show his glory to him. And this is how God reveals his glory to Moses. In verse 6, as in the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, God merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the Father upon the children's and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So what we're studying here today is uh, the actions and the desires and the mind of this God that reveals himself as gracious, as good, as a covenantal God by repeating his covenant name twice in the beginning, by saying that he's merciful to a thousand while you know, holding accountable to to a thousand generations while holding accountable to the third and fourth generation. It's a God who knows himself and wants to be known by his people as a gracious, merciful, loving God. So as we study this, remember, this is the God who has decreed the things that we're going to talk about today. Okay, keep that in, in mind. All right, some, some definitions without defending, so, so that we, have, we know what we're talking about, so that you know how I'm using these terms, and then I'm going to come back and defend from the Bible these definitions, okay? And the first one is, that I want to define is this term, unconditional election. And that means that God chose a group of people solely to be saved based on His will. There was nothing foreseen in this group of people that conditioned Him to choose them. So this doctrine is part of the eternal decrees of God, which took place in eternity past, when only God existed, and He was deciding what to do, and He decided to elect a group of people, not based on anything that He saw in them, not because they deserved to be saved, but solely because he wanted to uh, save them. So that's the first definition we want us to keep in mind. The second one, and this one kind of straddled both the accomplished part of redemption and the applied, is the idea of irresistible grace, which means God's saving, that the God's saving grace is all-powerful and cannot be resisted. Very descriptive term. Right? It means exactly that, that God's grace cannot be resisted. When God decides to save someone in history, as opposed to his decrees in the eternity past, he will save that person. That person, he or she, will not be able to keep God from saving him or her. Uh, so God says, I'm going to save Jerry. There you are again, Jerry. <laughs> Jerry does not have the power of saying, Noah, God, no, you're not going to save me. And then God goes, oh, bummer. I really wanted to save Jerry, but he says no, so I can't. That, that is not what the Bible teaches concerning God's salvation. And then one last one, because goes uh, follows clearly, biblically and logically, from the uh, doctrine of uh, uh, unconditional election is the idea of limited atonement. Though this term itself, though broadly used, is not a great term, because it doesn't really differentiate. Every Christian who is Bible-believing and who is worth the, the, the ground they, st- they step on believes in limited atonement. That is, they believe that the death of Christ has some limitations. Right? Some say that uh, the, the death of Christ is, has a limited power, that is, that, God, that Christ died for everybody, but not everybody gets saved, so he has not the power to save everybody. Or, or people believe that he died for a number of people. Not for everybody. So everybody limits. 
the atonement in some way or another. So limited atonement, maybe particular atonement is better, particular redemption is better. But this is what it means. It means that uh, uh, Christ died to save a particular group of people, and for that group, the atonement is efficacious. That is, it works. Everybody that Christ died for will be saved. That's the, what this doctrine teaches. So these are definitions without defense. Now let's talk about from the Bible, if the Bible actually teaches these, these things. Okay, Start with the first one, unconditional election. Of all the passages we could list under this doctrine, there are a lot of them. I would like to focus on one. That way you have one to hang this doctrine on later on. And it's Romans chapter 9. So if you turn to Romans chapter 9... And look at, uh, starting at verse 21. Uh, let's back up a little bit. Let's start at verse 19. The, the Apostle Paul says, You will say to me, to me then, why does, the, the, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me this like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath, and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So this passage presents humanity as inert. And as impotent as a lump of lifeless clay. I don't know if you ever did anything with clay, but it's just a lump. It's not like Plato taught that in the clay itself you find the, the principles and the characteristics of, a, of cupness or of plateness or of boldness and somehow the, art, the artisan is able to bring what's already in the clay out. That's not, it doesn't work that, that For some of us, we start with a lump of clay and we work at it, we work at it, work at it, and at the end we have a lump of clay. There's no cupness or plateness or boldness that we are able to uh, bring out of the clay. It's just a, a lump of inert, impotent uh, clay there. And notice that the passage teaches that there's no difference between those that are going to be shaped for the honor and those that are going to be for dishonor. They all come from the same lump of clay. That's what Paul says here. You have this lump of clay, the potter comes, and with some of it makes some vessels for honor, and with some of it he makes some vessels to dishonor. And the point that Paul is making is that the potter splits the clay, 
however he chooses based on his will, not what he sees in the clay. The clay doesn't say, please make me a bull. And the other part of the clay doesn't say, please make me a bedpan, which is the, the, the idea for dishonor. It's like a, a bathroom pot sort of, sort of thing. So that's what Paul teaches, that God, out of this, for no reason, in the clay itself, created some for honor and created some for dishonor, or appointed some for honor and appointed some for this, this honor. And that's really the idea of unconditional election. There's nothing in the people being chosen in eternity past that caused God to choose. It was from the same pool of people that some were appointed to honor and some to this honor. And this doctrine helps us to stay humble. It, it, no, our salvation our, that, that is a result of our election was entirely the grace of God. So it's entirely the grace of God that caused me to be saved because there's nothing in me that prompted God to, de- to decide to save me. I'm nothing more than clay in the heavenly potter's hands. That's all we are. And Peter, uh, Paul says there's no injustice on God's part by doing this way. Look at verses 14 through 16. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I'll, make, I'll have mercy on whomever I'll have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whomever I'll have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who turns, but of God who shows mercy. Now, Paul anticipated that the people say, oh, that's not fair. Have you ever heard of that being said? Yeah. Um, and Paul says, no, no. It's completely just of God to have mercy on some and not have mercy on others. The problem that we have is that we, we have decided that everybody deserves mercy. There's a problem with that because that mercy itself is something that nobody deserves. So God could be 100% loving and just and not save one soul. The fact that he saves some, not just some, you look at the book of Revelation, it is a multitude that cannot be numbered. It is a sheer testimony of his love and his grace and his mercy. We tend to focus on, oh, but people go to hell? Yes, they do. Because we all deserve that. We forget that the the actual question is not, why do, the, why do people go to hell? The question should be, why is it that God would consider even saving one person when everybody deserves eternal punishment? Any questions about this one? All right, the second one that the, we defined but didn't uh, defend is irresistible grace. Again, I could go to several passages. I'm going to hang out in, in just a couple passages in the Gospel of John. Look at, uh, turn to, with me. It's weird, right? We're using the Bible in Sunday school, actually turning to things. <laughs> to John chapter 6. I shouldn't make that joke so when we have visitors, they'll think we never look at the Bible. <laughs> John 6. Sorry, in verse 35. John 6 is one of those chapters that when you're doing, trying to read the Bible through in a year and you're trying to get four chapters in every day, it's a discouraging chapter because it's super long, but it's a super rich chapter. Look at verse 35. 
And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that, all, that, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Notice how there Jesus says that all that the Father has given to him will come to him, no one will resist the grace of God that's bestowed upon, uh, upon him. Also, do you notice how he says that all that the Father has given to him will be resurrected the last day? So there's no one for whom Christ died that is going to end up anywhere else but in heaven. And when, he, when God calls them to come, they will come. They will not say, no God, I'm not going to do that. Look at uh, chapter 10 of John. Look at verse 11. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. You see it again? He's not saying... I'll call them, and I really hope they come. You know, they will hear my voice, and they will come. Uh, same chapter, look at verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. You see that? The, my sheep will hear, they will come. They will have eternal life. Nobody's going to snatch them out of my hand. There's this definite group. God calls them. They cannot resist that grace of God. They are changed. They will persevere to the end. All this goes together. This idea of irresistible grace is also called effectual calling. It's also called regeneration. These are all the theological terms for that same act of God. In biblical language... This is the taking out of the stony heart and the giving of the heart of flesh that's promised in the new covenant. It is the passing away of the old man and the birth of the new man. This is all that's happening here in this concept of irresistible grace, regeneration, factual calling. Theologically, it is the changing of the nature. Uh, our nature is changed, which is the only thing that controls the will is our nature. And when this happens, when, when God calls us, when he gives us a new heart, when he regenerates us, when we have the new birth, then we are now able to willingly choose Christ at that point. But that has to happen first. That change of nature, of heart, that new birth has to happen before we can come to him. We don't, nobody comes unwillingly to Christ. Everybody comes willingly because God has already worked in them to be able to do that. Any questions on that? Katie? The first John 10, verse 11, verse 2, right? Does it 
I was 16. Uh, John's 10, 16. Yeah. Anything else? All right, so the third, the third area that we talked about that I wanted to, to defend now is particular redemption. And think about these passages that were already read in John. He, Christ says, I died for my sheep. I died for those who the Father has given to me. These references imply a, a definite group. And he says that all that the Father has given to me will come to me, and I will no wise cast them out, and they will all be raised at the last day. Uh, so here, Jesus clearly says that he died for a definite group of people, that all of them will be saved, none of them will uh, be lost, and that all of them will be raised at the last day. Uh, you might say, well, but he's talking about, he could be talking about the resurrection of the wicked. Well, not really. Christ speaks of resurrection and, and life with him as only for the righteous. He doesn't use those terms to talk about the wicked in, in, in eternity. So the, the Gospel of John clearly tells us, and you can go to John 17 as well. Uh, they're having a really good time over here, but there, you can go. You want to, might want to join that class. Uh, uh, you can go to John 17 where Jesus is praying and he's clearly, specifically and clearly says, I am not praying for the world, I'm praying for the ones you gave me. So he makes that distinction uh, there. Now there's also a theological necessity for this doctrine that's equally important as the biblical data. And this is it. And I needed to pay attention and think with me on this one. If Christ's death was indeed meant to accomplish salvation for everybody, right? that's what we like to believe that people want, that Christ died for everybody equally. If that's the case, if he died, if he, if he died on behalf of every human being, then there are people in hell from whom Christ died. Okay? That means that God punished his son for their sins, and now God is punishing them for, that, for those same sins. If Christ died for every human being equally, and there are people in hell, which the Bible teaches there is, so I hope you believe that, then God punished his son and them for the same sins. Is that the character of God that we find in the scriptures? As a God who doubly punishes sin? Where a God who sent his son to the cross and then despite of that went ahead and also punished people in hell? That's not the evidence we have from the scriptures. So, you know, it, it, we better let God be true on this, even if every man has to be called a liar. Uh, Christ did not die for everything equally. At least that's what the Bible teaches. So if we want to be faithful to the Bible, that's what we need to believe. Um, and there is great comfort in that. Because that means that everyone for whom Christ died, everyone for whom Christ died will be saved. We don't have to worry about that. We don't have to be concerned. Oh man, I came to faith in Christ, but I don't know if I'm going to come to the end because I don't know. Oh man, no. Christ died for you. You will arrive at the end, at the resurrection. And again, I think we go back to making God after our own image. We think, oh, if I did that, I only would save two people. And then we think, that, oh, then the elect must only be like two or three people. 
and that's it. And yet the Bible talks about the elect being a multitude that cannot be numbered. So we don't have to be worried that, oh man, I already know three people who are saved, so I'm afraid that nobody else is going to be saved. That's not the perspective that the Bible teaches. And the Bible says, don't worry about who is elect or not. You just preach the gospel to them. And then uh, let God be God in there. Now, people say, how about all the all and the world passages in the Bible? Well, the main purpose of these expressions was to correct a false notion that salvation was only for the Jews. That's the context in which we find those alls and worlds. These expressions were intended to correct, to show that Christ died for all men without distinction, whether Jew or Gentile. They do not have to be a particular ethnicity in order to be eligible for salvation. They are not intended to teach that Christ died to all men without exception, but to all peoples, all kinds of people, without exception. That somehow if you're a Jew or a Gentile or an American or an African or an Asian, there's not more advantage as far as salvation goes when that goes. And if anyone in the world will be saved, there's only one way, and that's Jesus Christ. That's another way that the word world and all are used. is to say that that's the only way to be saved is through Jesus Christ. And that's it. Any questions? About what I've said, not about what I've not said. Yes, Andrew. Yeah. The, the all passage that I have the hardest time is, I um, can't remember if it's Romans or First Corinthians. Paul talks about all in Adam, all in Christ. Mm-hmm. And we know that uni- the all for Adam is universally mm-hmm. to every single individual, mm-hmm. but then the all in Christ is not universally every human. Yeah. You have a, so to use my Shazam powers, that's Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15. Mm-hmm. And what Paul is saying, all that Adam represented fell in him. Right? That's all humanity. Mm-hmm. All that Christ represents will be saved in him. And then we let the Bible decides to define what, who is it that... Adam, that Jesus represents, right? All the Adam, all who are in Adam fell in Adam. That's all humanity. All who are in Jesus are raised in Jesus. And then the Bible defines what that all in Jesus is there. Anything else? All right, so in four minutes, the doctrine of reprobation. So not only has God actively elected people to go to heaven... God has also actively elected people to go to hell. This is probably the most offensive doctrine to human, the natural human mind. I think it's more offensive than the doctrine of election itself. Um, but the Reformed doctrine of reprobation teaches that God not only ordained people to be saved, but also ordained people to be damned. And I think Romans 9 is the clearest passage on this specific subject. Uh, Romans 9 talks about that, that, that out of this lump of neutral clay, God made some for honor and some for uh, dishonor. And, but we understand it in the context of Exodus 34, right? That this is a good God, a loving God that's doing that, not a capricious God that's just doing things willy-nilly all over the place. And though it may rub us in the wrong way, we take it with everything else the Bible says about God. 
And if we take it in faith, according to what the scriptures say, it becomes a sweet, though sobering doctrine as well. Uh, you know, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, uh, 2, 14, 15, he says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. So Paul is thankful for that, right? But this is what it means to spread the, fra- the, the fragrance in verse 15. For we are the aroma of Christ to God, to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? And he concludes, only by the grace of God we are sufficient. For so, so Paul is saying, we're thankful for the proclamation of the gospel. And God appointed the proclamation of the gospel to be the smell of death to some. That's all, this, all, you, uh, that's, that's all that's ever going to be to them, is the smell of death. But to others, it's going to be the glorious aroma of salvation in Christ. So, even the proclamation of the gospel is designed to affirm this doctrine of election and reprobation. That uh, though those are going to be hardened their hearts, and they're just going to pursue, keep on pursuing their way to, have, to hell. And but there are those that God is going to work and bring them to salvation in Jesus, Jesus Christ. And Paul anticipates the question concerning human responsibility. Now he said, "What's what's the point of trying to stay out of hell or go to heaven? How can God condemn a person for doing what he is ordained?" If I'm ordained to go to hell, why should I even consider Christ and, and so on? And in verse 19 of Romans 9, Paul says this. Who are you to even be asking that question? How do we like that answer? But it is the answer he gives. Who are you? Who are you to be looking at God and questioning? Can you do better? The answer is no. Right? Paul answers to this, this, to this challenge is that, both, that, that the challenge is both irrelevant and irreverent. Um, and just because, Paul says, just because we may have a hard time figuring something out does not mean that it's not true. Just because we don't like it doesn't mean that's not true. It is the infinite God we're talking about here. If we were able to get Him exactly then he would not be God. He'd be just like us. But he's infinite, much greater than we are. And we should expect the tension to be there. We just don't get why he does some things. Now, the whole lump of clay thing, and God is actively separating them based on nothing more than his desire to do so, with both lumps bringing glory to him, is what Romans 9 teaches. Now, we can buck against it, or we can submit to what the Spirit as revealed to us. Quickly, there's really three purposes in the teaching of election. One is to cause praise in our hearts. That's what happened to Paul in, in Romans 11:33, where he's talking about the election and the discussion starting in chapter 9, it goes to chapter 11. And when he's done, and when his mind can't get itself around all that he just thought, what does he do? He says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past fighting out. Comfort as well. Remember what Paul says in Romans 8? What 
what can separate us from the love of God? What charge can be brought against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So there's great comfort in this doctrine. There's also humility in that it's not our doing. There's nothing else that causes us to be special as far as, as far as being saved goes. It's all the grace of God. And let me end with what our confession says on, on this as he finishes the chapter in the decrees of God. It says, The doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care that man attaining the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience thereunto may from the certainty of their effectual vocation be assured of their eternal election. So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God, and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. The reason often that this doctrine is not an encouragement to us is because we think that we deserve to be saved. And when we are taught that there's nothing in us that causes that, 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 that would cause God to save us, say, so wait a minute, I, I'm not in charge of my salvation? And that's really, at the end of the day, what bothers us. And yet, there's much more comfort in knowing, if you truly know how sinful you are apart from Christ, there's more comfort in knowing that there's nothing in you that caused Him to save you, which also means there's nothing in you that will cause Him to walk away from you. That, that is great comfort in that. Look at that. No questions. No time for questions. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Let us pray. Father, heaven, thank you that you're a God who is sovereign. And we pray that we would bend our wills to your sovereign will, that we will conform ourselves by your grace, by the power of your spirit, to your word, and enable us to follow it faithfully. For asking in Jesus' name. Amen.